listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 12, reading verses 12 through 19. John 12, 12 through 19, and uh, we're doing a little calisthenics this morning, so I will ask you to rise once again, stop, drop, and roll. We won't do that, but this is John chapter 12, beginning at verse 12 and reading through verse 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him And had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I ask this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So here's a question I want you to seriously consider and keep at the back of your mind as we go through our message this morning. Would you rather die as a martyr or a warrior? Would you rather die as a martyr or as a warrior? We'll come back to that question later on. So maybe you already know this, but there's something happening on May 6th, 2023. Anybody know what this is? May 6th, 2023. Just a few weeks, it's happening. Who knows it? Yes. Well, you're running the slideshow, so of course you know it. The coronation of the new king of England, His Majesty King Charles III. The inauguration is going to take place at Westminster Abbey, presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury and televised live across the globe to millions of viewers. The formal ceremony has pretty much taken place in the exact same way, unchanged for over a thousand years. We don't know all of the details yet, but there's going to be a massive procession. So when this happened for the previous queen, Queen Elizabeth, there were over 16,000 people in the procession, and it took over 45 minutes just for it to parade through. They'll travel to the church and then back to Buckingham Palace, where the new king and queen will greet the crowd from the balcony. I was reading about it. There's going to be all this crazy stuff. There's an anointing, a 700-year-old coronation chair, an oath, something called a royal orb, 
an orb? Anybody know? I don't know what that is. Uh, a Skepter, a customized music by Andrew Lloyd Webber. It will be massive, accompanied by all sorts of pomp and circumstance. Now, contrast that with the coronation of King Jesus that we just read about in our passage for today. Two very different situations, right? There's no fancy processional with Jesus. There's just a bunch of people walking, waving some palm branches, coming out to greet him. There's no war horse, just a donkey. And even that donkey has to be borrowed. Jesus doesn't own it himself. There's no uniform. Jesus is basically barefoot, maybe wearing some sandals. Right? There's no marching band, just the rabble shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. If this is a coronation... It sure is a strange one. And if this is the new king, he's certainly not the kind anyone expected. The whole scene totally defied Jewish expectations of the Messiah. The palm branches and the donkey are, are two aspects of the story that are particularly important. I think it's, it's easy when we get in the habit of, you know, doing these, these holidays like, you know, Christmas and Advent and Lent and Palm Sunday. We, we see and hear these things so many times that we just kind of become numb to their significance. But the palm branches are, are really important. So in this harsh desert climate, palm branches were a symbol of life, fertility, and vitality. Kind of hard for us to imagine as we look outside and see a blizzard, right? But in this particular climate, that was really important. The, the palm trees were really tall, these date palms of the area. They're pretty unique trees. They had these large leaves and fronds, which would have been in plentiful supply. Now, rewind back to the Old Testament, and you'll recall that the Israelites celebrated this thing called the Festival of Booths. Does this sound familiar? Festival of Booths, also known as the Festival of Tabernacles where they remembered their sojourn from Egypt into the land of Canaan, and God provided their living quarters for them in these temporary kind of shelters, these booths. Well, these booths were actually fashioned in large part by palm branches. Eventually, though, the palm branches came to be a symbol of Jewish nationalism, printed on the currency of Jewish rebels against Rome, and eventually on the Roman currency itself. In about 167 B.C., there was this rebel by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Maybe you've heard of him. He entered Jerusalem after leading a large revolt against the Romans. And as he did this, he was celebrating this victory, this kind of Jewish independence over the Romans. And as he did this, the crowds welcomed him with palm branches. And this was in recent memory of the people, of the crowd, right? So as they're seeing Jesus come into town and they're seeing these palm branches, they're associating it with Judas Maccabeus. They've got that kind of at their mind and their memory banks, thinking this is the kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be, right? He's going to be a, a military commander who comes in and conquers the Romans, who sets the Israelites free finally from Jewish or from Roman oppression. The word that we just read, Hosanna, it doesn't just mean like, you know, praise the Lord or, or, or some kind of cliche thing. It means save us now. Save us now or give salvation now. And this is what they're thinking. This is what the crowd is hoping for, is salvation now. So it's a political kind of salvation, kind of redemption that they're hoping the Messiah is going to bring. 
The donkey in the story is important too. Jesus, when he does this, when he, he rides in on a donkey, he's doing it. If you follow the, the footnotes or the cross-references in your Bible, you see that this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Now, it was common, as it is in a lot of movies that we see, for uh, the conquering military leader to ride into town on what? Like a war horse, right? This powerful beast, this powerful symbol of might and strength, all the stuff we typically associate with kingship. A donkey, though, that shows something different. That shows humility. To put it in modern-day terms, it would be kind of as if King Charles III at his coronation rolled up to the church not in a new Bentley, but in a 1994 Ford Taurus. You see kind of the, the comparison there, right? During King Solomon's coronation, he too rode in on a donkey, and donkeys feature prominently in the story of King David's Lion. So they definitely had these royal connotations. So everything about this incident paints it as being a coronation, an enthronement. So we got the palm branches, we got the donkey, and we've also got a crowd. And I don't know if you've noticed this thing about crowds, but crowds are sort of strange. They have a, a weird kind of behavior sometimes. If you've ever attended a political rally or a Vikings game or even a third grade boys basketball game, you know this, right? When people are in a large group, they behave totally differently than they do as individuals. Like things that you would never do one-on-one, -on -one, you will see happen in a large group. There's this kind of mob mentality that can develop. They're volatile, sometimes even violent. And in this scene, on Palm Sunday, we actually don't just have one crowd, but we've got two separate crowds. So this is just like, you know, chaos upon chaos. So there's the one crowd that followed Jesus from Bethany. If you'll flip back a few pages before this text, you'll notice that it follows on the heels of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And a number of people were, were there to witness this. And so this is the crowd that is following with him from Bethany. But then there's also the crowd that comes out of Jerusalem, this, this just massive crowd. We're talking tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people who would have come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. We don't know how big the crowd was, but it, it comes out of the city to meet Jesus for his grand entrance, his coronation. And crowds are easily swayed, right? They flip-flop a lot taking one side one moment and another side the very next. And this crowd is no different because five days later, some of these same ones praising Jesus, worshiping Him, calling out, Hosanna, save us now, are screaming, crucify Him. We might say they have a pretty severe case of spiritual whiplash. They want Jesus to be king, but only on their terms. They want a savior, but only if he saves in a way that meets their expectations. 
They want someone to liberate them from all the bad stuff out there, right? That's where all the problems are, out there, those pesky Romans. If we can just fix them, defeat them, everything will be all right. They want a king and savior who conforms to their hopes and dreams, who fights for their rights, who's on their side and against everyone else. And so do we. Like the crowd, we welcome King Jesus one day and scream crucify him the next. We want a king and savior on our own terms who meets our expectations, a glorious king who wins and gives us a whole lot of wins in our life as well. We certainly don't want a king who dies, who humbles himself, a God on a cross who died to save us not from all of the problems out there, but the problem in here, in our hearts, this sin problem, we'd never ask for that. In thousands of years of history, right, if you surveyed every single human being who has ever existed, not one of them would be able to conjure up this idea. Not one of them could imagine a God who became human, suffered, was nailed to a tree, and shed his own blood to save us from our sins. Not one. We'd prefer a God more flashy and glorious. In other words, most of us would prefer Easter without Good Friday. Personally, I would prefer a warhorse. I wish the story had read differently. I'd prefer a warhorse, not a donkey. I'd prefer a warrior king, not a crucified one. But Jesus comes as a different kind of king, a martyr king. He's not a king who takes up his sword, but who falls on his sword for your sake and for mine, his beloved sons and daughters, to save us from our sin. You see, like this crowd, our own hearts are infected with spiritual whiplash. We're swayed one direction one moment and then another the next. The Apostle Paul describes this in a number of ways, but he talks about this spiritual whiplash, wanting to do the right thing and yet finding ourselves and pulled in a different direction by our own evil desires. Here's how he says it in, in Romans 7. And keep in mind, he's speaking as a Christian here. He's not speaking as someone who was previously a Christian and then they used to wrestle with sin and have all these problems. No, he's saying this is how it is. This is the Christian condition. This is the, the wrestling match we participate in. Listen to Romans chapter 7. Just a, a small part of it. For I do not understand my own actions. Anybody identify with that sentiment? For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. Does that sound familiar? Like you genuinely want to do the right thing, but you still find yourself doing the wrong thing and making those decisions that hurt you and hurt other people. You can't figure out why. Like this kind of internal civil war. 
Paul is saying that this struggle is normal for the Christian because we have two natures. Two natures. We have our old sin nature. Sometimes we call this our old Adam, which wants what it wants. And then we have our new nature as believers. In Christ, Scripture tells us we are new creations. And God is daily working to cultivate in us the fruit of of the Spirit, right? All of these wonderful things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And we feel the tension between these two natures, fighting it out within us, a kind of tug and war between Jekyll and Hyde. We're two-faced and unable to rescue ourselves, destined to face the wages of our own sin, which is death. No character that I can think of exemplifies this kind of two-faced nature better than Harvey Two-Faced Dent in Batman, The Dark Knight. Harvey Dent starts out as a beacon of light and goodness in the dark city of Gotham, ridding its streets of crime and violence and restoring hope, right? He's this, this positive figure that the whole city is rallying behind. But then he meets the Joker, this maniacal force of evil, and the Joker targets him, and he corrupts him. Literally half of Harvey Dent's face gets burnt off. So now, when we say two-faced, there's a very visual element to this. You look at him, and you see the good, and you see the bad. He's a, a good and bad all mixed together, a divided character, torn by spiritual whiplash from top to bottom, and he commits some heinous sins, unable to save himself. But the most powerful scene in this movie takes place at the, the tail end of the film. Right? Batman and Commissioner Gordon, they're having this, this intense conversation, and they're, they're pretty sure they're too late. They're thinking, man, what are we going to do? The Joker has won. But after a pause, Batman speaks up. And he tells the commissioner to pin the sins of Harvey Dent on him instead. Even though Batman is innocent, he agrees to be treated as if he were the guilty one. And he knows the consequences. He knows he'll be persecuted and hated. He says, you'll hunt me, you'll condemn me, you'll sick the dogs on me, because that's what needs to happen. Batman takes on the sins of another and suffers the shame and disgrace Harvey Dent deserved. Does that remind you of anything? For the sake of the people of Gotham, Batman sacrifices his innocence and the image of Harvey Dent remains untarnished. In this scene, the commissioner's son is there, there's this little boy, and he sees Batman take off into the night and he asks, he says, why is he running, Dad? He didn't do anything wrong. And his father responds, because he's the hero Gotham deserves, not the one it needs right now. So we'll hunt him, because he can take it. Because he's not a hero. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector, a dark knight. Rather than being the hero, Bruce Wayne, Batman, became a martyr. He became the villain so that Harvey could be the hero. In Christian terminology and Christian language, we call this the great exchange. 
is a profound illustration of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. See, in much the same way, Jesus was not the king we wanted, but he was the king we needed. He was a different kind of king, not insisting on his own rights, but willingly laying them down, not wearing a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns, not using power to come down from the cross, but to stick there literally because of how much he loves you and me. I love what St. Augustine says about this. Listen closely here. For the Son of God, the Father's equal, the Word by whom all things were made, for Him to be King of Israel was a demotion, not a promotion. For He who was called on earth King of the Jews is in heaven King of the angels. For Jesus to become King of the Jews is a demotion. Paul says this in Philippians 2, 5b through 8. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. So as we wrap up our time today, let's revisit that question I posed to you at the very beginning of the message. Would you rather die as a martyr or as a warrior? Our culture valorizes the warrior mentality, right? Fighting for our rights and attacking our enemies and defending our ground. We love to win, don't we? We love it. Whether it's sports or arguments or meat raffles, right? We love to win. But Jesus presents us with another image, the image of a martyr who willingly lays down his sword, dying to his own rights for the sake of others, and loving us, his natural-born enemies, to death, literally. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He wins by losing. Friends, you have a king who loved you so much that he left heaven behind to save you, left eternity behind to take on skin and enter time and space in Jerusalem, barefoot and dirty on a donkey, to be cheered and jeered, celebrated and mocked, pierced for our sins to forgive us and to credit us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. In all of history, no other king has ever done that. So as you reflect on this truth, I pray that you will find yourself shouting the same praise of the crowd that day 2000 years ago. And if you guys if you know this, say it with me and let's see those let's see those palm branches up high if you got them. Everybody say it with me. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you came not as the king we wanted, but as the king that we needed. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.